Hello. You're listening to the third episode for July 2023 of the BV Podcast, your taste of rural and some urban Dorset life. A warm welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. And hello from me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, famous chimp conservationist Dr Jane Goodall, resident of Bournemouth when she's in this country, answers the random 19 questions. I speak to Rachel Rogers of Citizens Advice regarding what to do when things go wrong with package holidays and some of the other live issues that their volunteers are currently dealing with. And we'll hear from archaeologist Paul Cheatham, just very recently retired from the academic staff of Bournemouth University. Paul is co-director of the now well-established and well-known dig near Winterbourne Kingston, affectionately nicknamed Duropolis. Renowned ethologist, passionate conservationist, inspiring activist, Dr Jane Goodall answers the random 19 questions. Dr Jane Goodall made her name by quite literally redefining what it means to be human. Through her work with wild chimpanzees in Tanzania, she set the standard for how behavioural studies are conducted. She was born Valerie Jane Morris Goodall in London in 1934. When her father was posted to France early in World War II, Jane, her mother and younger sister Judith moved to her grandmother's home in Bournemouth, which she has counted as home ever since. When I was ten, I dreamt of going to Africa, living with animals and writing books about them she told CNN in 2017. We didn't have any money, I was a girl, and the war was raging, so everyone except my mother laughed at it. Increasingly unhappy with the restrictions of school life, 16-year-old Jane wrote in an early 1951 diary, Woke up to be faced by yet another dreary day of torture at that gloomy place of discipline and learning where one is stuffed with education from day's dawn to day's eve. Nevertheless, she won two school prizes for essay writing and her exam grades were good enough to go to university. But her family couldn't afford it, so instead she enrolled at secretarial college and moved from one clerical job to another. Her opportunity came via an old school friend who invited Jane to spend a few months at her family's farm in Kenya. Jane credits her mother, Margaret Mifanwi Joseph, affectionately known as Van, with recognising her talent and passion at a time when girls were often discouraged from pursuing serious professions. Keen to nurture Jane's ambitions, Van promptly said yes, despite society's attitudes to allowing a young woman to board a ship to deepest, darkest Africa. Jane immediately fell in love with the country and took an office job in Nairobi, where she met the paleoanthropologist Louis Leakey, curator of Nairobi's Natural History Museum. Leakey was impressed by her and offered her a job. What Jane didn't know was that Leakey was actually looking for someone to research chimpanzee behaviour, but didn't want someone carrying the baggage of preconceptions of a university education. Leakey, according to National Geographic, believed Goodall's lack of formal scientific training, along with her passion for animals, would make her the right choice to study the social lives of chimpanzees at Gombe because she would not be biased by traditional thought and could study chimpanzees with an open mind. In 1958, at age 25, Jane Goodall travelled back to London and spent some time with experts in the fields of primate anatomy and behaviour. By the summer of 1960, Leakey had raised enough money to fund her work, and she returned to Africa. Girls were rarely seen embarking on trips for scientific research, and Jane's mother accompanied her when she began her research on the Gombe chimpanzees on the shores of Lake Tanganyika in East Africa. British authorities complained that a young woman should not be living alone in the jungle, 
so Van accompanied her daughter as a chaperone for four months. Jane acknowledges that the early weeks at Gombe were challenging. She developed a fever, probably malaria, that delayed the start of her work. Once she'd recovered, the rugged terrain and thick vegetation made exploring the reserve difficult, and she hiked miles without ever seeing a chimpanzee. Jane's first venture into the dense forests of Gombe Stream National Park in Tanzania began what would become six decades of intimate study of chimpanzees. She took an unorthodox approach, immersing herself in the chimpanzees' habitat. After months of trying to gain their trust, she was able to experience their complex society as a neighbour rather than as a distant observer. She then defied scientific convention by naming the chimpanzees rather than using the accepted numbering system and also by suggesting that the chimps had emotions and personalities. She came to understand them not only as a species but as individuals with complex minds, emotions and long-term bonds. Her groundbreaking discovery that chimps used tools challenged long-standing contemporary thinking, forever shifting the boundaries that separated humans from animals. Recognising her contributions to the field, Louis Leakey advised Jane to earn an academic qualification which would allow her to gain independent research funding. He paved the way for her to embark on a PhD course in ethology at Cambridge University, only the eighth person ever to be admitted without an undergraduate degree. There, she found herself at odds with senior scientists over her methodology. Jane graduated in 1965 after presenting a thesis entitled Behaviour of the Free-Ranging Chimpanzee. She then established the Gombe Stream Research Centre, which became a training ground for students interested in studying primates, ecology and more. Today it hosts a skilled team of researchers from around the world and dedicated Tanzanian field assistants. The research centre at Gombe also attracted many women who had been nearly absent from the field when she began. Jane Goodall's trailblazing path for other women primatologists is arguably her greatest legacy, said Gilbert Grosvenor, chairman of the National Geographic Society. Indeed, women now dominate long-term primate behavioural studies worldwide. Jane has spent more than half a century at Gombe National Park. Her research revolutionised the field of primatology and is one of the longest-running field studies of any species. National Geographic, recognising her work, started sponsoring her research and published her first article, My Life Among Wild Chimpanzees, in 1963. This collaboration grew. Jane further upset the university authorities when she wrote her first book, My Friends, the Wild Chimpanzees, published by National Geographic, as it was aimed at the general public rather than an academic audience. The book was wildly popular, and her academic peers were outraged. A popular television series, Miss Goodall and the Wild Chimpanzees, followed, and Jane became a household name. In 1977, Jane established the Jane Goodall Institute, initially to support the research at Gombe and protect chimpanzees in their habitats. A decade later, flying to the first ever Chimpanzees in Context Symposium, Dr Goodall saw from her aeroplane window the accelerated pace and scale of deforestation. At the symposium, she heard firsthand from fellow researchers about declining chimpanzee populations beyond her beloved Gombe. She realised she had to act to save chimpanzees from extinction. The Jane Goodall Institute soon grew to be a major part of Jane's work, and the Institute is now a global non-profit organisation committed to community-centred conservation, a testament to Goodall's philanthropic spirit and her belief in the power of individual action.
When we put local communities at the heart of conservation, we improve the lives of people, animals and the environment. A core part of the Institute's work is the Roots and Shoots programme launched in 1991, which inspires and empowers young people from preschool to university to become involved in hands-on projects to benefit their local community, animals and the environment. Jane Goodall's activism work stems from her belief... You cannot get through a single day without having an impact on the world around you. What you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Today, at 89 years old, Jane's love for the wild, her passion for conservation, and her commitment to fostering a better world for all remain undeterred. Her work remains as essential as ever. While many of similar age might choose to bask in the comforts of retirement, Jane continues to work relentlessly her determination and zeal undiminished as she continues to inspire and to drive change. And so to the random 19 questions. What's your relationship with Dorset? Well, where I live now, Durley Chine Road on the West Cliff, it is where I grew up. The only difference is that back then it was part of Hampshire. I forget when our area became Dorset. The film you last watched? My Octopus Teacher. Everyone should watch it to understand the uncanny intelligence of the octopus. It's Friday night. You have the house to yourself and no work is allowed. What are you going to do? Well, I cannot imagine a time with no work allowed. But if that was so, I would play a Beethoven, Mendelssohn or Dvorak symphony or another piece of classical music loudly. What book did you read last year that stayed with you? What made you love it? I have almost no time for reading. By bedtime my eyes are tired from gazing at a screen or it's late after a lecture. I do, however, read my Kindle on planes. I love books. My house is full of them. But my Kindle can come with me with all sorts of books. The book that always stays with me, and the one which I read sections of on long flights, is Lord of the Rings. I love it because it is a completely imaginary world, yet it's so very real. Also, it mirrors what's going on in the real world today. The Dark Lord is a combination of Putin, Bolsonaro, Trump, etc. The Black Riders and the Orcs are the CEOs of the extractive industries, animal traffickers, and so on. We need to hugely increase the Fellowship of the Ring, and we all have to be prepared to join the fight to save planet Earth. Of course, there is hope. The Ring does get thrown into the volcano, and the Hobbits are rescued. And I love the fact that the dust given Sam by Galadriel restores damaged environments. The best biscuit for dunking? None. I hate the very thought of dunking any kind of biscuit. What would you like to tell 15-year-old you? Exactly what my mother told me. If you want to do this, for me this was to go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them, you must work hard, take advantage of all opportunities, and if you never give up, Hopefully, you will find a way. Of course, I did. Tell us about a sound or a smell that makes you happy. Gombe, with the waves of Lake Tanganyika gently breaking on the beach. Or if I'm in the forest, it's the sound of rain pattering on the canopy of the forest above me. But what did make me happy, and I still think of it, when on summer evenings, after I'd gone to bed, I'd hear my grandmother playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on the piano downstairs, window wide open, and the smell of roses coming through my open bedroom window. What would you like to be remembered for? Two things, if that's not greedy. The first is for helping to change attitudes about the true nature of animals 
and that they are sentient. They can feel emotions, they can feel pain. They are not just things. The second is for starting the Jane Goodall Institute's youth programme, Roots and Shoots. It's now in 69 countries and growing, and involves hundreds of thousands of young people from kindergarten to university. Even adults are joining in now. There are some 1,600 groups in the UK alone. All the groups choose for themselves three projects, one to help people, one to help animals, and one the environment. They're all interconnected. What's your secret superpower? Opening my mind to the great spiritual power that gives me strength when I'm exhausted. Also, I'm obstinate and won't give up. And I get strength from audience reactions. You have to be energised when 10,000 people stand up cheering when you enter an auditorium. And then do it again after I've spoken. Your favourite quote? From the Bible. As thy days, so shall I strength be. I think of it when I'm facing something I dread. For example, when I went into medical research labs where chimpanzees were being used as guinea pigs, giving them human diseases which other animals, less like us, could not be infected with. Seeing our closest living relatives, who I knew wild and free in their social groups in the rainforest of Gombe, confined alone in five-foot-by-five-foot cages, surrounded by bars for testing vaccines or cures. Bored, imprisoned, frustrated, and some fallen into deep depression. I couldn't talk about the conditions unless I'd seen them with my own eyes. Your top three most visited websites, that's excluding news and social media. I use Ecosia rather than Google because every time you use it, they plant a tree. And it's basically the same platform as Google. I don't often visit websites, only to check out stories sent to my email about events in the outside world. But I do use the BBC and Al Jazeera to check on news. What was the last gift you either gave someone or received? I gave a beautifully carved wooden woodpecker made from softwood by a local artist in Halifax in Canada. It was a gift for someone who lent me his cabin for a free weekend during a tour in Canada. A little cabin on a lake shore surrounded by tall trees. The only problem, if you put a toe outside, it was instantly attacked by ten large hungry female mosquitoes. Males live on nectar, not blood. Tell us about one of the best evenings you've had. After 89 years on the planet, I cannot possibly pick out one single best evening. There are some that do live in my memory, sitting around a campfire on the Serengeti with the sound of lions roaring. Sitting out by the Platte River at sunset, listening to the sound of thousands of sandhill cranes as they fly in, formation after formation, to roost in the river. A few evenings with my mother, long ago, when I was first studying the chimps. We'd sit around a little campfire, lit by a hurricane lamp, and were almost always accompanied by Terry the Toad, and sometimes a Janet, who became tame. We called her Crescent because of a distinctly shaped spot on her coat. I'd tell Mum about what I'd seen during my day in the forest. Oh, and New Year's Eve with my family in Bournemouth, when all the lower rooms were lit by only candles waiting for midnight. What is your comfort meal? I'm vegan, and for me it's a plate of spinach, asparagus and sautéed mushrooms with mashed potato. What in life is frankly a mystery to you? What happens after I die? On a more mundane level, I don't know, sometimes... How I keep going through an exhausting tour. Cats or dogs, or in this case, chimpanzees? 
Chimpanzees are too like humans. I don't think of them as animals, and there are some nice and some less so. Dogs win every time. The dog I had as a child, Rusty, taught me that animals have personality, reasoning power, and emotions. Because of him, I was able to insist that we humans were not alone in having these qualities. When I was told by ethology professors in Cambridge University in 1961, that humans were completely separate from the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, of course, we know about the amazing intelligence of pigs, rats, crows, parrots, even octopuses, and they all have personalities and emotions. What shop can you not pass by? I seldom have time to go in anywhere, but if I'm walking down a street in the old parts of London, Paris, Vienna, New York, etc., in the non-touristy parts, and I have a few minutes before my next event then it would be a shop selling second-hand curiosities. You never know what treasures you may find. Or the little shops in Venice selling Venetian glass, the little animals and so on. What's your most annoying trait? I've asked five people who know me well, and they could not think of even one. But I irritate myself by not remembering things, like what name I filed a document under, or where I put something. And finally, you have the power to pass one law uncontested. What will you do with it? Give all animals the equivalent of legal personhood. Rachel Rogers is the Volunteer Development Manager for the Citizens Advice Central Dorset. Rachel, thank you very much for talking to us on the BV Magazine podcast. Hello, Terry. Nice to speak to you. Now, a lot of people will obviously have heard of the Citizens Advice Bureau, but may not have been directly involved with it themselves. Just as a starter, tell us a little bit about what the CAB actually does. Well, first of all, we're not CAB anymore. We're Citizens Advice. Well, basically, we're a volunteer-led organisation. There are four um, Citizens Advices in in the Dorset, Bournemouth, Paul Christchurch area. I work for Central Dorset Citizens Advice, which basically is a broad swathe that runs from Portland in the south up to Sturmitz and Newton Gillingham in the north. We give information, advice and do advocacy to help people deal with the problems that they're experiencing in their lives and we also try to tackle the underlying policy issues. So a campaigning organisation as well as one that actually helps people in their, with their everyday problems, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. We've got two aims and the first aim is obvious. Uh, I think most people will understand that, that people come to us with problems benefit problems, debt problems, problems at work, problems with their housing and some immigration problems maybe, sometimes some problems to do with health and consumer issues Um, and and we obviously try to deal with the problems that they've got. Uh, We can sometimes do that by giving them some information that they can help themselves with. Sometimes we need to tailor that information to give them a bit more advice and sometimes if people are really struggling or the problem's really complex we may have to almost take over and and do some of that work for them and and we would call that advocacy and then our twin aim is to look lots of these problems are caused by social policies that are having an undue impact on a particular group for for example and so one of our, our other aim is basically to try to look at these problems gather evidence and go to the people who are making the policies and say you know how about making a bit of a change Okay, and you are the Volunteer Development Manager, so within the title we obviously have the word volunteer. How many of your workers are volunteers versus paid staff? About 80%. That's pretty typical. 75%, 80% volunteers is pretty typical for any organisation. And what type of people tend to come to the 
citizen's advice, I won't call it the CAB anymore, typically retired people, does it tend to be, or or what? As advisors, as volunteers, yeah, Yeah, I mean, we have a a very wide range of people who come to us from all different walks of life, so so obviously the the first group is probably people who've retired, Um, some of them have retired from professional jobs, some of them have retired from all kinds of different work. Sometimes we get people who've had a bit of time out of work, maybe to have a family or because they've not been well and they're looking to go back into work and they want to gain some skills before they go back into work. So we'll have, we'll have people who come to us for a couple of years, do some volunteering and then they'll go back into work. And also um, we're increasingly recruiting people at the much younger end of the market. Um, so I've just taken on a volunteer. It's in year 12 at school. To be a lawyer, she wants to get some practical experience so she's going to come to us during the summer holidays for the next couple of years. And then hopefully we'll keep her for a bit. She wants to take a year out, so we might be able to train her to be an advisor and go on. It's really important to us to try to work with all different sectors of the community. And under 25s is probably the area that we find hardest to reach, partly because they've got lots of other things going on, partly because they don't always know that we exist and they don't always think that we're relevant to them. So so it's really good for us to be able to do that. Uh, Last week was work experience week in the schools around Dorset, and we had two young people who came to us for work experience. So we tried to give them as much experience as we could. They went out to some outreaches, they sat with some advisors, we took them to the magistrate's court. We managed to get them a a Zoom call with somebody who's training to be a barrister, just to give them some idea that that volunteering can lead, lead to something much bigger. And your role is, presumably, to go out and find new volunteers and to induct them, is that...? Yeah, well, I recruit volunteers, I train volunteers, I support volunteers during the time that they're with us, I develop them. Citizens Advice is a very evolving organisation, so sometimes we've had volunteers with us for maybe 10 years and lots of things have changed in that time, both structurally and functionally. And so, so my, the main part of my role is to help support people through those changes and to make sure that they can be the best advisors they can be. Okay, now the piece you've written for the August edition of the magazine focuses on package holidays, very topical at this time of year. It really talks about what happens when things go wrong, because I (laughs) I imagine you don't get many people coming in saying they had a wonderful (coughs) holiday and everything went brilliantly. It's the the other side of the coin that you tend to see. Now, what typically goes wrong with a package holiday what do you you tend to see well I think we can split the problems into two and and the first is problems that occur before you actually go on the package holiday and then the second group is problems that occur while you're on the package holiday so things that occur before you go on the package holiday as we can see at the moment with what's happening in southern Europe could be um, you know that your your flight may be cancelled or that you don't want to go on the holiday because the destination is suffering some kind of particular damage and there's obviously some guidance that we could we could give you all the information that I'm going to talk about is all on our website which is www.citizensadvice.org.uk it's all under the consumer section there so I'm not going to talk about anything that isn't there so people can always check for themselves so um so the first thing is obviously if something's going on because your flights in your flights delayed or you want to cancel it or something like that's happening you need to, people need to check for travel warnings before they set off. If there aren't any travel warnings and if there's problems in the area that they're going to, they need to check with their tour operator or their travel agent or the airline. There's lots of information on the government website uh, that you can find. If your package holiday hasn't been cancelled, you can cancel for a full refund at the time of your planned departure, but only if there are unavoidable and extraordinary circumstances at the destination or its immediate vicinity. Normally, you'd be looking at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office guidance on this, and if they basically say 
your advice not to travel, that probably will, will cover you. The first person you need to talk to is your package tour organiser. Key thing to remember here, it's a problem occasioned by either the package holiday organiser or the destination. It's not because you've changed your mind or you're ill or anything like that. That doesn't come into it. What we're talking about is definitely not that. I mean, you might have illness cover through your travel insurance, but we're not talking about that. And it's definitely not because you've changed your mind and it's definitely not because it's rained while you were on holiday. The first type is what we've talked about. The second type is basically if you go on the holiday and it's not what you expected, but not what you expected because you expected the sunshine every day, not what you expected because that's not what it said in the brochure. So if you think you've booked for a five-star hotel and you end up in a three-star hotel or they've promised you an excursion every day and you don't get an excursion every day or they've said there's a pool and there is no pool or they've said the hotel's opposite the beach and it turns out to be a five-mile bus ride away, these are the kinds of things that we're talking about where you may well be able to claim compensation. And the first thing you should do is go back to the person that you booked the holiday with and you should do that while you are on holiday. The sooner you report this, the more likely there is that either something can be fixed or you're going to have more chance of getting the compensation. If you, if, if you don't report anything until you get back and you suddenly go, oh, it wasn't very good, they're going to say, well, why didn't you say so at the time? OK, so don't hang around. Get in contact with your tour organiser as soon as you're aware of the problem, yeah. uh, even when you're still over there. Now, you talk in your article about things like claim for loss of value, out-of-pocket expenses, uh, loss of enjoyment mm-hmm. and breach of contract. Now, just tell us a little bit about the type of precautions you need to take and any evidence that you need to gather to support your case if you're then going to take it up with the tour organiser. Well, obviously, one of the things is you're talking about out-of-pocket expenses. If you're having out-of-pocket expenses, for example, you've booked a hotel, it says it's opposite the beach, turns out it's a five-mile bus ride away, you and your family are having to travel on the bus every day, you need to keep your tickets or keep the receipt for the travel voucher. You need to prove you have actually had out-of-pocket expenses. And those out-of-pocket expenses need to be reasonable. So if you go to a hotel which says... You've got meals included and when it turns up your meals aren't included and you're having to go to a restaurant and you're going to, you're going to report this to your, to your package tour operator. If you're eating and you're buying your food, you, know, you need to be buying reasonable meals and they're not likely to compensate you for alcohol unless the original promise was that alcohol would be included. But even then, you still need to be reasonable. Don't be buying top-of-the-range bottles of wine and expecting your operator to compensate you for it because that's not going to happen. There's always this test of reasonability. And things like bad weather, we've already said, is not covered. But loss of enjoyment, that's an interesting phrase. How do you define that? Loss of enjoyment is basically if something happens where, for example, you're going on a holiday and they say they're going to provide you with um, a two-day excursion up the mountain. It's going to be a pony ride. And when you get there, you get half a day in a minibus. And it's not up the mountain at all. It's something, some completely sad local excursion. That could be something that you'd anticipated that you were going to enjoy, that was going to be fantastic, and it hasn't happened. But you're going to have to find some way of finding out what the value of that enjoyment is, and you might get compensation for that. You're only going to get compensation for the value of the bit that you haven't had. It won't be for the whole holiday. Just to summarise all of that, I suppose in many ways it equates to any other legal situation. What were you promised? How did it differ from what you were promised? And what evidence can you provide to show that? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, and it's absolutely always going to be about the evidence and also the timeliness of your complaint. So you need to be taking taking photographs. If there's something that isn't how it was described or isn't what you expected, 
take photographs, keep receipts, make notes, keep timely records of what's going on, report it to your travel agent or your, or your package store operator as soon as you possibly can. Because if they don't know that this is happening, they may well be able to transfer you to a different hotel, a different resort, provide you with a different package. But if they don't know, they can't do that. And if you come home and then, you know, to, next week you go, oh, well, it was all a load of rubbish, they're going to say, well, you know, you could have told us on Sunday and then we could have done something about it and provided you with the enjoyment you were expecting rather than you coming back and expecting loads of money. Okay, that's holidays. What other things are in the in-trays of citizens' advice advisors at the moment? What's the big issues, presumably around the cost of living and mortgage affordability? Is that taking up a fair amount of your time? Yeah, I mean, cost of living in all its guises is obviously the biggest thing that we're dealing with at the moment. That really started with the hike in energy prices, uh, looking back about a year ago, and obviously it's been compounded by uh, the rise in inflation, it's been compounded by the increase in mortgage rates, uh, the knock-on impact on on people's rents, and obviously people are really struggling to to pay their way at the moment, and, and we're seeing increasing numbers of people who we would never have seen two or three years ago coming to us for assistance. We hear a lot on the mainstream media about reaching out to the citizens' advice when people have problems. That would be your advice, getting contact as soon as you reasonably can? I would absolutely say, if you are struggling in one way or another, either with the cost of living or with not being sure what benefits you want to claim, or possibly with, with debts that you, that you are that are coming towards you, please seek advice as soon as possible. The sooner you seek the, the advice, the sooner we can find a way of, of pointing you in the right direction. This is particularly the case if, if, you've, if you're mounting up debts. That's happening to lots of people at the moment because they're struggling with reduced incomes and increased rents and increased energy, energy prices, increased food, food prices. There are things they used to be able to pay, they're not being able to pay. Please don't come to us the day before you're due in court. It makes it really difficult for people to help. Please open the letters, bring the letters to us as soon as you can. The sooner you bring them in, the sooner we'll be able to try and find a way forward. I imagine your workload has increased quite a lot recently. Can people get in contact with you? What's the best way, via the website or a phone number locally or what? It really depends on how people want to access us. There's about 50 different places in Dorset where people can get face-to-face advice. Um, there's a, an online advice line telephone number. There are emails. There's the website. Everything is on our Citizens Advice Central Dorset website www.centraldorsetca.org.uk or there's a telephone number which is the free Dorset advice line telephone number that's 0800-144-8848 and if you look on the website there's a section called contact us and that will tell you how you can contact all four of the main offices in the central Dorset area. And if there's somebody listening to this that thinks, oh, I've got a few spare hours each week, I wouldn't mind volunteering with this organisation, presumably you'd be pleased to hear from them. Yeah, absolutely. I think all four of our offices are currently looking to recruit new volunteers. Certainly, I'm looking for people on Mondays and Tuesdays. And if you, again, if you look at the website, there's emails for each of the individual offices and you can contact us like that. Or on the National Citizens Advice website, um, there's a section where it says, if you'd like to volunteer for us, click this box and that will come through to your local office. Rachel, thank you very much for talking to us. and We wish you well in your continuing work. Thank you very much, Terry. Duropolis, as archaeology students have named it, is the site at Winterbourne Kingston once occupied by an Iron Age tribe, the Durotrigans, who were living peacefully there when the Romans marched into Britain. The big dig at Duropolis takes place in the summer and is five weeks of intensive outdoor work.
It's Bournemouth University's training excavation for their archaeology undergraduates and master's students as part of their degree courses. But members of the public are also invited to take part, as Paul Cheatham, co-director of The Dig, told me. So it's a, it's a sort of outreach activity as well as a teaching excavation and it's also a research project uh, at the same time. So to be just a wee bit frivolous, uh, all sorts of people can have a chance at being Indiana Jones. They can be. If they, <laughs> they, they might find it a little less exciting than most Indiana Jones films. Uh, but uh, yeah, basically there are a lot of people who want to try archaeology out. In fact, we had a number of uh, uh, school children, um, 16 pluses, that were coming to do their work experience as well. A few students who've, who are doing their A-levels and are thinking of doing archaeology at, at university, they, they'll come along just to um, get a bit of experience and see how they like it. And we get um, a number of students from other universities that don't have digs or they're not convenient for the students to get to. So we had this year a student from University College London um, was doing his fieldwork experience with us um, down in Bear Regis. That must be very uh, satisfying for you, Paul, to to be able to interact with people from all over the place and and young enthusiasts particularly. Yeah, it is it is uh, great to introduce people to archaeology. In fact, one of one of our volunteers, Amanda, um, she had to bring her two children along because of the uh, school strikes, teacher strikes, um, the other day, and. To her amazement, her daughter was so enthusiastic she wanted to come back next uh, strike day and actually miss out on uh, things she was going out with a friend because she preferred to go and come and do the archaeology. So I think that was, you know, quite telling. That, you know, she said she'd never had her children so enthusiastic about anything she'd done as, a, as their mother. <laughs> they were very impressed that she dug a very large storage pit and it was full of wonderful... Um, animal bone remains and all sorts so they, they really um, uh, got into it how, de- into how it. delightful so but you you Paul you were one of the uh, you're one of the co-directors of the dig and That's you were one of those who made the first discoveries back in 2008 um, well it, it was actually my co- a colleague um, John Gale we've always taught at Bournemouth a very practical uh, archaeology degree and uh, John with his students went out to do some field work at the site and they, they were doing some geophysical survey um, you know the, the, the techniques that look beneath the, the soil to see what the archaeology is um, on that site because we'd been alerted by the landowner um, about metal detection finds there and that there's uh, possibly a site there but um, nothing other was known about it so my colleague John Gale went out with his students his half a dozen students also and they surveyed part of the field where the finds were coming up with the metal detectorists and um, found uh, the site so that was back in 2007 in 2009 we uh, actually went out and did the first excavation and we've excavated there every year um, apart from uh, a break of two years that we had in um, uh, 18 uh, 2018 and 19 uh, so we've been there every year digging so it's been been 12 years of um, of work we we haven't dug on the same site we move around the hillside looking at different settlement areas now i was i was wondering because it sounded as if the site would have expanded and expanded but if you're digging in different places um but but how how 
can you estimate how big the site is? Well, the point is that um, we're on a sort of southeast slope in in Dorset on, on the, in the Chortland area, and it's not untypical of all the areas around that part of Dorset in the fact that all the hillsides are covered in settlement from the Mesolithic, so the, 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 the first real settlers in this country after the Ice Age, through to the late Roman period. The, the hillsides are absolutely covered in settlement evidence. Um, in the medieval period they moved down into the valleys, more to the spring lines, and left the, the high downs deserted and left for sheep pasture, but um, up until that point all the settlement had been on the, on the, the downland, and it really is intense. You know, everywhere we do a survey, we find another settlement. It might be Bronze Age, might be Iron Age, might be Roman, or a combination of all of them. But it, literally the whole hillside is covered in settlement. So um, we do our geophysical surveys. So, and that's my role in the, in, the, in the process. I'm the geophysical survey director. So myself and um, a particularly uh, active colleague, uh, Dave Stewart, um, along with the students, we survey the hillside, we locate where the cause settlements are, and then my co-director and my other uh, colleagues, um, Miles Russell, Harry Manley and, and John Millwood, they run the excavations each year. So it's a very much a big team effort um, to investigate the site. And you were talking about the fact that all these settlements were effectively upland settlements this presumably is because it's easier to defend um well the the thing we're finding and i think which goes counter to the sort of received wisdom is that none of these sites are defended in any way there are uh, boundaries there are ditches and uh, and banks but they seem to be more to do with uh, dealing with corralling animals and the movement of animals very few, if any, could be functional defences. They're really going up on the top of the downland because they're going for the chalk soils and particularly where the, the uh, chalk's near the surface. So our main settlement sites are on chalk, where the chalk comes near the surface because it's, it's um, dry, well-drained, the soils are easy to work and if they dig their storage pits, they're digging into solid chalk so they produce a very, very solid walled structure under the ground because um, one of the main features of the in the past of settlement were these underground storage pits some of them are small they're only perhaps a meter deep by a meter wide others are three meters wide and three meters deep they're like underground rooms so storage just to the, the storage pits were for storing what then paul well, the thing about the storage pits, they're a bit enigmatic because they're beautifully dug. They clearly had some sort of a roof over them. If you ever go to Butzer Ancient Farm in Hampshire, there, there's, um, uh, there are reconstructions of these where they have a little thatched roof on them. But that's uh, just, uh, you know, what's thought to be there. But clearly, from the way the pits have been weathered, they must have had covers on them. And they never have anything in them. So it's thought they acted as cellars where they would put, you know, meats, cheeses, dairy products, other dairy products, possibly vegetables. But they're basically the equivalent of the, of the, you know, the Victorian cellar when in a period when we don't, didn't have fridges to keep 
foodstuffs cool. They do seem to be just storage facilities. And when they go out of use, and we don't know what prompts them to decide that a pit, which is perfectly good as, as far as we can see, suddenly is no longer in use, they will often then fill the pit with rubbish, they'll use them as middens, or and or they'll place special deposits in the pits and we're just digging one at the moment where an entire horse has been buried uh, near the base of one of these pits presumably as some sort of offering to the gods to prefer, uh, um, either thanks for for some uh, for the plentifulness of the harvest or some way to ensure future harvest will be better but for some reason these these pits are dug um, they seem to be perhaps used for a generation and then they're out of use they're filled in and often I say often when they get filled in they get special deposits and midden material in and this is where we find all our archaeological information about the sites occasionally they put in a human within the pit Again, either as, as part of the closing deposit, where they're physically closing off the pit. Often, the fill at the top is clearly dug from another pit that they're digging nearby. Um, and, uh, and they take that out and fill the old one in. Um, and there are, you know, literally hundreds of these pits over the hillside. Uh, of different sizes. So that that's really interesting. So the, these, these sort of ancient fridges were, were a bit multi-purpose then? Yeah, 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 because we get some small ones that may have been um, stores for, for grain, that seed grain, because you, you want to store your seed grain in some way that will allow you to keep it for a couple of years just in case the next harvest fails because of the weather or something. And they've done experiments and, and, and you can keep a large amount of grain in, in one of these pits. If you seal the top with clay, it sort of goes off, produces carbon dioxide. That sort of stops the decomposition process. And you can keep uh, your seed grain for at least two seasons this way, um, as I say, which allows the, the community to get over any particularly bad harvests that they might have. Um, but the bigger pits are far too big to put grain in there they are literally underground rooms in fact when they were first dug in the 19th century it was assumed that most iron age people lived under the ground most of these are dug in the iron age um, but by careful excavation and on our sites we can find the structures that were the roundhouses that they lived in and those are very substantial um, buildings so what we're finding is that although dorset uh, uh, is littered with hill forts Maiden Castle and, and other hill forts all, all around there, 20 or 30 hill forts. For a lot of the Iron Age, most people seem to be living out in the countryside in a relatively benign environment. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying violence and things didn't happen in the Iron Age, but it clearly, for most people, for most of the time, they were living uh, just a rural, quiet rural life. And most of the human remains that we do find, they've lived long for, uh, hard but fairly long lives and they haven't got ev evidence of particular trauma on on them that would have caused um, death certainly by violence or anything so i think we're getting a different picture of what it was like throughout most of the prehistoric period in in dorset it has rather been colored by this idea of uh, iron age warriors uh, you know holed up in their hill forts waiting for the Romans to arrive and it really the picture is not like that at all. The main 
focus of, of, of what we started to look at were, were things called, we call them banjo enclosures. It's a terrible name for them, but they're, they're uh, circular enclosures, probably about 60 or 80 meters across. So they're quite big and they have a, a big ditch that's probably as, as deep as a person, an adult, and a bank about the same height, which would probably have had a hedge around the top of it. And they, this circular enclosure then has a funneled entrance um, which funnels out then onto a series of droveways that go down to the rivers because they had to take they had to water their animals and they would take them down to the river to water them and back up to this uh, large enclosure and these were thought to be originally just cattle enclosures but now they've been excavated we realise they're they're actually high status Iron Age farmsteads and they often come in twos and threes together. And they're all connected up by these, say, droveways, trackways, which are designed for moving animals because they always have the ditch on the inside. So you can imagine a track with a big ditch at each side and then a bank. They're for keeping animals in, not keeping things out. And uh, within these banjo enclosures, we find often one really large roundhouse. In our case, uh, the one we're just digging is 14 metres across. So this would have been a substantial house. The walls seem to be made of cob, um, cob walls, which you can still find um, in the st buildings and things around there today. So there would have been large round houses with their entrance facing the southeast, a big wide entrance. And along with the main round house, there would be three or four subsidiary round houses, which may be for members of the extended family or for specialist tasks, such as weaving or metallurgy. So these are sort of, Big farms, I call them sort of, the, if you're familiar with uh, Dallas, I call these the sort of south forks of the Iron Age because clearly the focus of their existence was their animals. And in our next episode of the BV Podcast, we'll hear once more from Paul Cheatham about the significance and finds at Duropolis. And that's all for this third episode of July's BV Podcast. Terry and I will be back again before long with August 2023's BV Podcasts. So until then, enjoy the summer. And bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. <laughs>